I was chatting with somebody the other day about this. They signed up for a protein powder brand and they were vegan and they were constantly, and in the sign up flow, they wrote they're vegan and they clicked the vegan tick. And every week they were getting at least one email with things that weren't vegan, right? So that's a very, very <laughs> broad example of like, you took all this information, you have all this zero party data, you're doing nothing with it. At Jones Road, like in our case, you know, we have a quiz through Octane AI that we just about like probably 70% of customers go through this quiz and we ask like, is your skin dry? Is your skin oily? Now the post-purchase journey should be different whether you have dry skin or oily skin because you're using the product differently. Now our brand is created by Bobby Brown, who's a legendary makeup artist, but she has oily skin. So now the biggest kind of what I saw in week two and the role of a great CX person is to listen and observe. And what I saw week two is that the biggest concern customers have is that a hero product is making their skin oily because they have oily skin and we're telling them to use it as somebody that has dry skin. So that's a great example of listening, taking your learning and actually bringing it into action and, and switching up strategies. So what that means for you know myself and Joanne who runs our email and SMS is let's talk about how can we iterate the customer journey on the post-purchase email flow that we're saying we're giving a completely different story. Today in Inboxing, Eli Weiss, Senior Director of CX and Retention at Jones Road Beauty. All right, welcome back to Inboxing. I'm your host as always, Hillel Berg, and today we have a guest, not from the email geek community, but somebody who's knows a hell of a lot about email, and but, but really the whole the whole holistic part of it, they named social, email, every way, every channel you can think of, customer service, that every touch point a customer comes in touch with, that's where this guy comes in. We'll talk about that because it really fascinates me, um, the whole CX role. I never heard of a CX you know, specialist until I met him. The guy today we're talking to is Eli Weiss. Eli's got a really interesting story and I'm really glad he'll be here to share with the email community. And without any further ado, please welcome Eli Weiss. Thanks for having Eli. me. Eli. Oh, for sure. Thanks for being a great sport about it. Hang on. There we go. Thanks for being a great sport about it. And uh, really, especially on this Memorial Day, <laughs> you know, you could be at the beach uh, yeah. or, or barbecuing or whatever, but, uh, but you're spending it on inboxing. So we really appreciate that over here. It's great to be here. And yeah, thanks. So. All right, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and you know how, you know, now you're at Jones Road. It was a long road to get to Jones. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I grew up in a family of 10. I'm number two of 10 in the, in the Orthodox world. Um, spent, I'd say, the, the bulk of my childhood being pretty introverted. I, I still think I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty introverted. <laughs> was always obsessed with the, the science of people and what makes people tick. I think I was like 12 or 13 when I read... Uh, you know, the, the Dale Carnegie, you know, how to, how, win, friends how to win friends, exactly. Yeah. How to win friends and influence people. And, you know, came across influenced by Cialdini and, and all these books, just kind of explaining the science of people. I always thought that you had to be loud, bubbly, charismatic, obnoxious to, to understand people. And it, it took me probably 20 years to realize those are not the people that understands people that understand people. Those are the people that are, are obnoxious. <laughs> Essentially, you know, Grew up in New Jersey, uh, moved to New York when I was 18 uh, to go to Talmudical Yeshiva and was seeing that a lot of my friends that were a few years older than me were traveling for free with points and miles. And I learned about the world on reddit.com, which is 
I, I always say the best and the worst place to learn about the universe. But <laughs> learns about, you know, points and miles and walking to a Chase Bank in Washington Heights and asked them if he, if, if he asked the manager if he can teach me everything about miles. And, he, and he's like, this is pretty weird, but sure. And a year and a half later, I had a little over a million miles and went to study in Israel, but lasted about 30 minutes there and started traveling. Mm-hmm. So in my did early... You, can I stop you for a second? Just, I'm curious. Did, yeah. you go to y, when you say you go to Talmudic Academy, like, do you mean YU? No, I was in, I was in a yeshiva called Breuer's. Um, okay. on the other side, on the yeah, other yeah, side of the hill. That's the other option, right? Like, yeah. So, uh, was there, um, basically spent my, you know, didn't have a, any secular high school education and spent my early twenties traveling when most people were in college. So had no real education at all. Most people that grow up in the environment I grew up in end up jumping back into that universe to get a job there. And I was just really, really, uh, very, very passionate about finding my way in the real world. Um, my background gave me no real entry point into the universe. And they say there's always a front door, back door, and the third door. Um, for me, the third door was the fact that I was traveling a lot and was in Israel at the time. And obviously, Tel Aviv has a massive startup scene, doesn't have a lot of native English speakers when it comes to that scene. So there are quite a bunch of companies that are always looking to hire native English speakers. And when I, you know, Traveled for four years, was very excited about travel, thought that I loved luggage. It took me like four years to realize I, I can travel with a plastic bag. It wasn't the luggage that was exciting. But I uh, joined a Kickstarter uh, Israeli company called Fugu. Um, they had launched in 2014. When I launched in 2016, they were a year and a half, almost two years past the, uh, past the Kickstarter and had no product to ship. So customers were furious. And that was my, you know, I... I the whole separate story on how I how I got the job, but essentially jumped in day one and it was like, you're doing all customer service. Let's see if we can figure this out. And I had no formal education, but as a consumer, I, like I knew the way. You were the whole department or like you were just a yeah. customer service rep? I, I mean, there was nobody really there. There was no one else answering phones, so, right. Okay. Yeah, so it was a very small team and, and it was, yeah, we had like, I think at the time we were, I think 1,600 customers in 64 countries. It was all email, but it was, it was pretty intense. Um, most of the people wanted a refund. The money was spent on R and D, so there was no refund happening. And it was, you know, it was pretty, pretty crazy for a first role in, in customer service. And my hypothesis going into it was, you know, these people want to feel part of the creation of the brand and, and the building of right. the product and just be transparent. So, right, like your Kickstarter, like that's what you're looking for. Like you want to be considered like an investor. Like exactly. So that was our, you know, we ended up. Very long story short, we ended up being super transparent and rallied these people to give us some more time and get to the finish line. And fast forward a year and a half later, we launched V2 based on the feedback of V1 and had all these people, you know, hop right back in. And essentially, that was very early in my career. I learned that customer service or, or great customer experiences can transform a brand. And that's kind of the beginning of, of my story. So I spent four years there. They went from 17 employees, raised a few million dollars to the smallest. It was myself and the CEO. Did everything from investor relations, trade shows, marketing, business development, Amazon ads, Facebook ads, pretty much everything outside of finance and design. And then after four years, COVID came. And in 2020, luggage wasn't a hot commodity. So jumped into food and beverage. My family has been in kosher food and beverage for probably 50 years now. I swear I wouldn't touch it. But um, ended up in food and beverage in 2020 was at Nugs, which is now called Simulate, a very hot startup that raised about $50 million, was there for a short two months, and then got poached to Olipop, um, which is the healthy soda brand, also raised about 40-something million dollars, and 
was there for almost two years and now I'm in beauty. So that's kind of my, my journey in a nutshell, um, or in like eight minutes, but (laughs) but (laughs) that's the gist of it. All right. Yeah. There was a lot there. There was a lot to unpack. All right. So how did you, like you become sort of like known as like a CX community. I never heard of CX before you came up in my feed through somewhere. I don't remember what. But that's how I found out about Olipop and I signed up to Olipop emails. I never bought a product. I live in Israel. We don't, not available here, but you guys are doing great stuff on email. Um, I copy some of your stuff and I will continue to do that. But how much are you behind that? Like, I mean, that's not even the question here, but like, how yeah, much was, as a CX person, like are most companies now like developing like a CX role? Is that becoming like a thing? Like a person that has like their job is to monitor all the touch points the customer goes through and... Talk about what that is. What is a CX person like? Yeah. So number one, I was pretty close to every email from Olipop. Every single email was approved by me or went by me before it went out. Um, st- taking a little bit of a step back, uh, the, the role of, let's talk about the difference between customer service and customer experience. Customer service is what most people know of. It's, it's a fire extinguisher. It's a, you know, it's a very reactive, like customers are frustrated. Let's deal with them. Those people that deal with them generally get paid a very, very little amount of money, get an old computer in the corner of the office, and just get dealt with um, whatever marketing is working on this week or whatever supply chain messed up last week, right? Um, customer experience, you know, the, the, the pioneers of, of customer experience and putting a massive focus on the customer started from, you know, Tony Shea from Zappos and, and Ryan Cohen from Chewy, you know, these brands that really show that investing in the customer and doing these kind of things that don't scale can actually be a formidable business, right? Zappos sold for billions of dollars, Chewy IPO'd for billions of dollars, right? They, they show that you can have a team of a few hundred people writing handwritten cards, but what is customer experience? Very, very broadly, the idea that it's a proactive take on, on customer service and it's looking at every single part of the customer journey and ensuring that you are at least meeting expectations. So that starts from the ads that you're running to the emails you're sending to the website experience to shipping and delivery to returns to actually getting the support team set up. So I manage a team of 10 at Jones Road, right? So it's like, it's everything throughout the customer journey. And the, the, the last question, are brands hiring this role? I think you're seeing it now more than you saw five years ago, five years ago, you know, more than you saw 10 years ago. I think it's a slow, a slow progression, but you're definitely seeing I believe General Mills has a chief customer officer. You're seeing some some broader, massive companies hiring even in the C-level, these kind of roles. I think for somebody like me to make a living off of being a senior director of CX didn't exist 15 years ago. And that kind of answers your question on the screen, right? Like, how did I become a force in the CX world? Because not many people were talking about it five years ago. And when I started, you know, even talking about it on Twitter in, in 2016, 2018, 2019, I was sure nobody would care at all Um, yeah i mean it's it's not a it's not a cool job and it wasn't definitely wasn't a cool job and i think it's it's there's not many people like there's a ton of growth people there's a ton of people that will talk about every other part of the business other than cx so i think there's just not many people in this space talking about it that's probably why people even know who i am which is crazy to me but yeah i'm just i'm just a kid from new jersey so (laughs) Got it. All right, let's move to email a little bit. But like, how do you think like email marketing can really smash CX out of the park? Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a fantastic question. I think what what starts off is, is how you view email marketing. I think email marketing has has been 
for a lot of brands, very direct response, right? It's like buy our stuff. Um, and and what what happened over the last couple of years is obviously it started from email and then it pulled on to SMS where it's just like buy our stuff, buy our stuff. And it, it's diminishing returns. Every email marketer knows that as you kind of like go broad and get this massive list, you end up with a non-engaged list. And then you end up segmenting and segmenting to get this engaged list and, and engage 30 and engage 14. And you just continue... <laughs> Continue, you start off with a list of 100,000 people, you end up getting mm-hmm. that sense of 20,000, 5,000 open it, and you're just like basically spraying and praying. When <laughs> brands think about great CX and email, they think about, in my opinion, it's how can I get the right message to the right person at the right time? That's the goal of great email. Now, what that means on a very practical level is, for example, somebody signs up for a brand, and I was chatting with somebody the other day about this. They signed up for a protein powder brand and they were vegan and they were constantly, and in the sign up flow, they wrote they're vegan and they clicked the vegan tick. And, and every, and every week they were getting at least one email with things that weren't vegan. Right. So that's a very, very <laughs> broad example of like, you took all this information, you have all this zero party data, you're doing nothing with it at Jones road. Like in our case, you know, we have a quiz through octane AI that we, just about like probably 70% of customers go through this quiz and we ask like, is your skin dry? Is your skin oily? Now the the post-purchase journey should be different, whether you have dry skin or oily skin, because you're using the product differently. Now our brand is created by Bobby Brown, who's a legendary makeup artist, but she has oily skin. So now the biggest kind of what I saw in week two and the role of a great CX person is to listen and observe. And what I saw week two is that the biggest concern customers have is that a hero product is making their skin oily because they have oily skin and we're telling them to use it as somebody that has dry skin. So that's a great example of listening, taking your learning and actually bringing it into action and, and switching up strategies. So what that means for you know myself and Joanne who runs our email and SMS is let's talk about how can we iterate the customer journey um, on the post-purchase email flow that we're saying we're giving a completely different story. Right. They were talking to them, you know, with Mr. Oily Skin, Miss, you know, Miss, it looks like it's Miss, but um, yeah, no, nah, it's interesting because, yeah, obviously, you know, people are different colors and skin types and, you know, there's a lot goes into makeup and I could use some right now. <laughs> but, uh, my, uh, whatever, the dark is helping, but, uh, whatever, it's a barrel. But yeah, thank God I don't have to put on this. This is going audio after this. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting moving from different sectors, you know, like you worked in luggage and then drinks. And then now makeup, like, how do you prepare? Like, you know, is it like the same? Do you feel like it's like the same thing or there is like a curve you have to learn before you can like dive into it? Yeah, I think for me, I've, I've always, you know, coming from a very non-traditional background and, and kind of quote unquote, making it in into the real universe. I was always challenged by like, am I a one trick pony? Can I only do this in luggage? So I've challenge myself throughout my career to constantly completely uh, do the most insane thing and completely switch industries. It was kind of fun for me to, to relearn everything I've learned from, you know, luggage is this high AOV, low LTV, right? It's like this one-time purchase. You're generally not purchasing one every week to, to soda, which was like a $40 AOV and you're purchasing every two weeks. It's a complete different. And being on both retention and CX, it's a completely different game. Now, stepping into beauty, I think beauty and food and beverage are, are still in that CPG, like, you know, pretty frequent purchase. Um, it's, it's in the same realm. I think going from luggage to soda was a bigger jump than from soda to beauty, but I've I was pretty close to leaving Olipop and going to a fintech company and pretty close to going to a SaaS company. And I still think at a certain point in my career, I'll end up just, I, I want to prove to myself that I can 
you know, to come in with, yeah, that can come in with this customer first mindset and it actually plays out. And it's, it's candidly not that much different, right? It's just that it's just, right. a it's like, yeah. you know, people are people are people, you know, yeah. and that's, uh, yeah. My last guest was Liz Willits. She's a copywriter on LinkedIn. Actually to the, last week she did a post, you know, about frustration she has kind of, and she didn't write it like that, but she wrote it. We're a big brand. We have to have a very careful voice, you know, like we can't yeah. take risks and like, yeah. Who's behind big brands? People. So people, people, it's all people. It's um, true. Talk like a talk like a human being. Yeah. <laughs> that's, like yeah. her, that's her message. All right. Well, Let's jump to the next one. So who do you feel? And you mentioned Nerdy Chewy. You mentioned, what was it for the other one? Zappos. But Zappos. Right. Well, Zappos, you know, unfortunately, Tony, I don't know how to say his last name. Shit. Um, yeah. Yeah. He passed away. Yeah. But, um, but that is a tremendous success story that like really like, putting, you know, customer service, the center of your brand built a billion dollar shoe empire, just shoes. Yeah. And it's interesting it's interesting in general. I mean, you probably know from the inside, but like with Alipop, like I, there's a lot of very, you know, like more, there's more craft beers than ever. There's more like these like, you know, specialty drinks than ever, you know, like what do you think is driving all that? And is it going to be like a survival of the fittest kind of thing? Like how yeah. is this going to play out? Is it everyone's leaving mainstream soda and everyone's trying on like these specialty drinks? I, th- I think the, the, the question is a good one. I think what we're seeing is just a broader run towards slightly healthier alternatives, especially since COVID. I think COVID really started kind of pushing people towards towards health a little bit more. What you did see is, you know, like Peloton's a great example of this rise when people were indoors, now the crash when people go back outdoors. I think what you're seeing when it comes to food and beverages is a pretty sustained climb where people are, you know, looking for easy wins when it comes to health. Peloton getting on a bike every day for 30 minutes is very difficult. Switching your soda for a healthier alternative is pretty simple. The risk of, you know, just broadly the risk in the next two years is probably an economic squeeze, which which makes people less excited to pay $3 or $2 for a can of soda when they can pay 50 cents. So I think, I think that might be risky. I think what you're seeing is the market is definitely in its infancy, like healthier sodas wasn't really a thing until two years ago. So you'll see definitely 10 to 15 pop up. I think in a healthy market, you need you need two or three or four to create a category. And then you'll probably see survival of the fittest. Yeah, I think, you know, when you think about what brands are doing well, it's it's the way they make you feel both physically and emotionally. I think brand is emotion. Um, short, you know, we talk about this often at Jones, like the short term play is always like the, the quick value or the sale or the discount and the long term kind of LTV play the retention plays is, is the brand is the emotion is the way it makes you feel. And that doesn't have to mean changing the world that can mean Zappos, right? Like the, the shoes were the same shoes you bought at DSW, but it was the feeling of safety that if something goes wrong, this is a brand that will take care of you and you're willing to pay $3. Right. And you don't have to go to a store. Like it just right. comes to my door, make it really mean you know, and now I can't remember the last time I went into a store to buy a pair of shoes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But I have easy feet. You know, not everyone in my family does. Just know that. Right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, can you tell us about, you know, what was going on at Olipop? Like when you got there and, you know, because they exploded, right? I mean, I never yeah. heard of it until I was introduced to it. And I last died. It's like everywhere now, right? Like it's a pretty big Yeah. Brand. So when I joined... I was number 17. So they had some they had some growth already at that point. They were in, you know, Sprouts and some of the Whole Foods. I think they were in about 500 stores when I joined. And when I left 
a year and almost two years later, they were in 17, 18,000 stores and had 75 employees. So it was definitely there during that major, major, you know, L-shaped curve. I think the most fascinating thing to me is is being on a team of people that are incredibly driven and, and passionate. I think what I saw at Alipop in general, I think what, what I've seen in the food industry is that people are so passionate, especially with better for you food. People are passionate about the change that they can make. And when you talk about soda having like a 90 something percent household penetration and it being the biggest, the biggest driver towards obesity in the States is, is sugary beverages. Yeah. By, by, a, by a long shot. So you're seeing people that are, excited to kind of drive this forward and it doesn't have to be we're changing the world but it can mean we're keeping people slightly healthier by giving them this nostalgic flavor and you know working with great really really intelligent people it was a blast like i like i joined yeah at, at a pretty small stage and built out that cx team built out the function and champion cx for the rest of the business and we we grew both d2c and and, and retail pretty strong um I'd say we were throughout the whole thing, we we're about 60, 40, 70, 30 retail direct consumer. So it was predominantly a retail business, but built subscriptions from zero to 10,000 subscribers monthly. So it was a, a real interesting, um, a real interesting time. But I think the, the unique thing about Olipop that you don't see very often is that just about every single part of the business stepped up, like email stepped up and, and SMS stepped up and, and marketing stepped up and sales stepped up. It's just like, we don't see that very often. I think that's the success story is that, you know, everything got leveled everyone, up. At the same everyone, time. everyone, you know, you know, it's the, the Mario growing noise. <laughs> everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone stepped up their game. That's really cool. All right. This is a surprise question. Yeah. What was the most surprising thing that you learned at your time at Olipop? Uh, nobody has all the answers. I think that we we join these like super fast growing startups thinking that executives are, are geniuses and that everyone knows their stuff and they've been doing it for forever. And that wasn't the case. I think we saw a lot of a lot of people that were learning on the job. And I think the, the my biggest learning at Olipop, which is probably the most surprising thing as well as the amount of space they gave for people to mess up. I think that the learning curve was so much faster because we used to screw up all the time. Like we would, we would, you know, as long as you learn something and you never did the same mistake twice, you were, it was all fair game. And I think that that space for people to, to mess up is something that I think just when you think about like a venture back business that you need that massive quick curve. Uh, my time at Olipop was just amazing. It felt like a playground. It was like, you had an idea, go do it. Like there, the money was there. The team was there. The, the resources were there. And it's like, you wanted to try something new. You just, you went to the team and did it. Um, I guess that was, yeah, (laughs) Uh, well, the team got very, very large. Like I thrive in tiny teams before Olipop, the largest team I was at was like 13 people, 17 people. And I Uh, absolutely love, I'm a generalist. Like I love doing multiple things and I wanted to do CX and retention and they were, you know, I'm doing CX and I had the opportunity to step up and, and join Jones, which is, Jones Road is, you know, year one, they did eight figures. So this is a brand that makes Olipop's growth look silly. Um, um, that's amazing, really. I mean, it's just yeah. another conversation, like how the hell they do that, especially in makeup, which is like such a competitive yeah. space. I mean, a lot of it has to do with, you know, really great products, sure. but the ele- the elephant in the room is, is it's Bobby Brown, who, you know, Bobby Brown sold her first company to Estee Lauder for, I think, 75 million in the 90s and grew it 
while being there, grew it to a billion dollar brand and left there and had a 25 year non-compete from when she joined in the nineties. So the day her non-compete oh. was over, she, she, the day her non-compete was over, she launched Jones road, which is a, a clean and, and simplified take on what she produced at the lotter brand. Um, so she just, you know, has 650,000 followers on Instagram, wow, and a very large huge. audience. Okay. So I think the audience, but again, like the, the fascinating thing is audience only brings in customers once. Like if your product isn't great, they never repurchase. Right. So everything, right? Yeah, no, that's hard as marketers. You know, if you're talking to a brand to take on as a client, but their product sucks <laughs> and you don't believe in it, it's, it's, yep. it's not an easy thing to turn it around. Email marketers who run high volume email programs know that the ease with which you can make decisions impacts campaign success. And that's why OnGage made sure it's easy to act on, optimize, and leverage your data. With OnGage, you'll be able to send your customers on personalized journeys based on the data from an action-based dashboard and with in-depth reporting. To learn more, visit hillelberg.com slash OnGage and discover what OnGage can do for you. All right, moving on to, so what do you find upsetting in your inbox? I guess it'd be... Not talking to you. Yeah, yeah. I hate I hate when I get an email that I know was not was sent to every single person on the list. What's worse is when it when they try to make it sound like it was written to me, um, but I know it isn't. Right. So that's number one. the The other thing that I find absolutely terrible is the growth hacks, like the reply or the forward or like all uh-huh. those tricks, because I think that tricks don't get you a, a an engaged list. Tricks work once. When I think about even what what we've seen at Jones is like our open rate is in the 50% range every single email, right? It's like, and we have a list of close to half a million people, right? So the reason why that is, is because people sign up through our quiz or they sign up through, you know, they're, they're much further along the consideration phase when they sign up. And it's not like what you're seeing a lot of brands do is like, I don't have an email list, so let's swap lists, let's run a giveaway and all those kind of like growth hacks. Don't get you an engaged list, they get you a list of people that aren't interested in your product. So when I see an email that I'm like, this was just, blasted because you needed to meet your end of month goals like you'll see today you'll see today like all those brands with the last minute kpi emails and those stuff drive me absolutely crazy because i know they work that's why it drives me crazy (laughs) because i know it drives those sales and i know that the marketers will continue doing it but they don't think about you know the question is like eli if it works why not do it and and the answer to that is it's an ltv play it's like over a long period of time you're you're just front loading the revenue you're just pulling revenue further ahead in the customer journey versus being patient and building a brand evangelist. And you do have to believe in that. You have to believe your product and your brand is good enough that they won't run anywhere. But I think front loading revenue is a mistake that all marketers, uh, including myself, often make. All right. So you mentioned mistakes. So what was was your big mistake? (laughs) I think in general, my my big mistake was early in my career, I, I had strong feelings that I, you know, I thought that X could never work or Y could never work. And I, for even with email, like I hated the idea of, well, SMS is probably a better example. I thought that SMS marketing is the worst idea in the world. It's like, I hate it. I hate it. I get messages from like three people and one of them is my mother. Like I, I hate the idea of getting texts from brands. And, you know, it, it I, I challenged myself throughout the last couple of years. It's like people are signing up for it. And obviously people are signing up for a discount code, but people are staying on, on board. And I think, I could have come around to that sooner. And now I think I'm in a more moderate place where I think, you know, everything in moderation. I don't think you should be yeah. expanding, but I think it's possible 
to create and cultivate a community through SMS. So that's something I, I definitely didn't give enough attention early in my career. Right, that's a good that's a good one. All right, so let's flip it. So what was your biggest win? I think day one at, at Fugu. I think just having this hypothesis without any sort of history. Like I shared this on my newsletter right. two weeks ago, but I, I had this presentation that I showed in my in my interview in Israel. And it was just basically like, here are the five reasons where nobody believes you anymore. Like this is, <laughs> you know, this is why your brand is, is slowly degrading and nobody believes you when you're not being transparent. And the look of, you know, like Israelis can always appreciate good chutzpah, but the look of like, I'm going to smack you so hard, you'll fly out of my office to like, <laughs> can you start tomorrow was like a slow progression. But I, I think it was, it was for me with zero experience, never done it. It was a hypothesis that I have and I pushed it through to the end and it, it saved the brand. So I think that was <laughs> probably the biggest one did you have a lot of confidence like going like i mean like you, without any formal education since elementary school like you know just in terms of like writing and just jumping into this like bigger corporate world to present yourself like hey i can help you like like did you have a lot of doubts about that i think that you know what what's interesting is that some of the people that come across um I'd say some of the people that come across confidence, like I, I, I confident definitely had had some confidence issues to work through as a young teenager. So I think it's 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 something I've, I've probably spent over a decade in therapy working on the way I feel, and I, I'm definitely good at presenting myself in a certain kind of way. I'll tell you this: after after we finish talking, I'll probably be in bed for three hours, uh, just just relaxing. I think I, I've learned how to do well in in the in the situations that I have to, and it's almost like a switch and. It's it's a combination of desperation and a chip on my shoulder, right? As a early twenty year old, I had no other choice, and I, I needed that job. And I was passionate enough that I felt like I'm smart enough to figure it out. And I just needed to get in the door. And the, the hardest part for somebody like me or anyone that doesn't have that kind of education is getting past HR, right? HR's job <laughs> is to is to remove all the all the BS. It's like get great fantastic candidates to, to the hiring manager, they're never going to pass along a, a person that has no education and is just passionate. But you know who likes that? The hiring manager. Because they would rather somebody that does, you know, I say this often, but it's much harder to unlearn than it is to learn, right? And I think for me, it was like my, my passion and my desire to learn and the fact that I'm not going to come do what I did for six years at Diageo or General Mills <laughs> or some other corporate company. I'm excited to learn. And, you know, I think, the, doing the work, like spending 10 hours doing research on the on Fugu before I came in for the interview and all that stuff. But I think it's just a, a passion. Like even when I'm hiring, like I'm not looking for people that have a decade of experience in CX. I'm looking for people that deeply understand what service means. Like they could have been a, a server at a restaurant. They could have been a flight attendant. They could have been a teacher. I've hired all three of those. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking for people that are passionate. Obviously there's, there's a little... Uh, something there for my own uh, childhood and upbringing, but I think that's, it, it's hard. Yeah. Okay. How do you avoid letting disappointed customers dominate brand sentiment? I think like there's obviously a middle ground to all of this. I think what most brands do is either one way or the other. You find, you know, situations like Peloton where they had the children dying from the treadmill and they said nothing about it and said it was totally fine in, in what was the middle of last year, right? Like they're, they were having real issues and they ignored it. Sorry, yeah, they, they were having, if, you, if you Google Peloton tread children, you'll see there were a bunch of safety concerns and there was a child that died and they ignored it and they said it was totally fine, it was totally fine, totally fine. And eventually it kind of climbed into the brand sentiment and now they're, they're actually in, in the Supreme Court in the state of New York to talk about that. 
um, wow. the fact that they that they knew there was a problem and they pushed it under the rug. So I think that's your, that's your one extreme. Your other extreme is brands that every time they see somebody saying like, hey, this is terrible, they sound all the alarms into a public apology, right? I think that there's a middle ground and I think it's empathizing and, and validating customers in private manner, right? It's like whether somebody lashes out on TikTok and you send them a direct message or they lash out on Instagram and you send them a DM, um, but you take care of it. And I think when, when you don't take care of it, you end up with a situation where you have a lot of negativity. I think for the most part, humans and consumers see the broader picture. They don't necessarily see this one bad uh, incident. So as long as you can keep it tamed, you're fine. The, the other side of it is like, you don't have to satisfy every single customer because you'll, you'll always have crazies and you'll always have people that decide that one X, Y, and Z that that's not reasonable. And it's just about letting them down slowly. So I think if you can, if you can solve for most of it, you're in a pretty good place. Hey, do you think brands should make their shortcomings like really, like we know we, we stink in this area, but we make up for it in this area or like just, or just we're great at this, not at that. I think it really depends on the, on the brand and the brand voice and where they are in their, in their brand journey. I think if, if Glossier came out next week and said, we stink at making this product, like they wouldn't sell any more of it. So I think it, it really depends on, on where you make that statement. I think for us, you know, Fugu is a great example where we came out and we said, like, we messed up. We are very delayed and here's what we need to bring it to the finish line. I think when we did that in a tactical way, we brought forth this new belief in our brand and our mission, which was very helpful. You know, I, doing it in a tactful way, if there's a reason for it, could be helpful. I think if you are using it as an excuse, like, hey, we, you know, if you only sell rugs and you're saying your rug making capabilities are garbage, like that's obviously <laughs> degrading to your brand, right? I think it's like, if, if it's done in, in a real way that can bring more customer understanding and empathy, I think it, it could be successful, but it's, it's definitely not a uh, one answer for all kind of, kind of thing. Where do you look for inspiration? Like ideas, you know, you want to try or you have, you have like a board or something you use? That's a good question. I think that I'm, I'm constantly looking at the way I'm treated by brands. It, it's not necessarily one brand. And I think the the unlock for me was inspiration doesn't always have to be positive. I can look for things I definitely don't want to do. I've definitely had, you know, leadership in the past that I said like, oh, I'm not going to do this when I'm a boss. And I think I've, I've become a, a very, very good people manager because I've learned from so many people that weren't great. I think with brands, it's the same thing. Like I'll get this text on a Memorial Day weekend saying like, it's Memorial Day, buy our stuff. And I'll be like, well, I'll, I'd never do that. So I think for me, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like seeing what I wouldn't do. And I think that the... The best kind of inspiration is when you can look at something and, and take some of it, not take all. I think, you know, we were looking over our welcome flow and we went through like really good emails.com or whatever it was. And just right. <laughs> we took a tiny, a tiny bit of inspo from probably 30 different emails. Right. So I think that's like, you know, taking a little bit from everything and understanding what resonates with your brand makes more sense than just saying like, oh, I love Glossier. I'm going to do exactly what they do because that's Glossier. That's not you so that's that's the two things i'd say is looking for things not to do and, and taking a little bit of inspiration from a lot of different places all right well yeah i think you answered this already but like when you left you left Dolly pop because it was getting big and you were ready to go back to a small team yeah i mean i i think <laughs> a few things i i love a love a challenge and you know i i think there are three i say this often as there are three reasons why people leave a company 
or I'll say the other way. There are three three reasons why people stay at a company forever. You know, number one is compensation. Like if you have this crazy equity that you're waiting for, if you're getting paid a crazy amount of money. Number two is because you want to stick around because you have really good growth opportunity, both professional and personal. And number three is working with really great people. At Olipop, I had some of it. I didn't have all of it. Uh, so for me, it was like I, I was looking for a, an opportunity. And I wasn't I wasn't actively looking, but I was passively listening for an opportunity that would challenge me both personally and professionally. And an opportunity to work with people that I feel like I can massively learn from. I remember connecting, you know, I was being I was approached by Away, which is fascinating just because oh. of my my history in the legacy space. But I was approached by Jen Rubio, the CEO of Away, about a role there. Yeah, yeah. While I was vetting <laughs> Well, so she DM'd me on a on a on a Sunday, just a cold DM. I never spoke to her, and I was amazed by that. I was excited, and I was kind of vetting the opportunity and talking to people that worked there. And one of the people I connected to was working at a brand called Jones Road. I had no idea what that is, and I connected to her. And then she said, "Oh, my boss follows you on Twitter. He'd love to connect." And I connected with this guy named Cody. It turns out he's Bobby Brown's son. Um, and we yeah. chatted, and we stayed in touch, and they had a CX team, and when. I think it was a couple of months later, he reached out saying like, hey, we are looking to hire a CX person. Our CX person left. And I said, let me think if I, if I know anyone. And two weeks later, he's like, we're still looking. And I said, I, I can't think of anyone offhand. And he's like, you idiot, we're trying to hire you. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think just even having that conversation with Bobby, like what I was searching for, like I can easily go out on my own and start something tomorrow and, or I can do consulting. And what I'm looking for at this point in my career is the ability to learn, the ability to grow and the ability to lead. And I think those three things came into play with with Jones. A, they were building a CX team of ten. B, you know, Bobby Brown is a billion dollar business. This is, you know, she's sixty five, but is in the office every day, and you know, we work hand in hand and talk all the time. Uh-huh. You, don't, you don't get opportunity like that at, at most other brands. And yeah, they did eight okay. figures year one. So for me, this is like the this best of both worlds, where I can I can play in a sandbox and do all the things I'm excited mm-hmm. to do without taking a bunch of personal risk. My wife's in vet school, and I have a one year old, so I'm not not exactly in the place to to go crazy and, and empty out my 401k to start a startup. But just a fantastic opportunity, I couldn't say no to. So, right, right, I hear that. I had a question. Yeah, I wanted to know, like, is it. Is it all in office? Like, is it how much is remote and how much also with Olipop? Is it all in Brooklyn or? So Olipop has no office, period. Um, no they office. never had an office. They were fully remote and they have people in like 12 or 15 different states. So Olipop, we, we would meet up every, you know, every couple of months for two days and just have like an offsite. But we there was no office. Jones Road has an office in New Jersey. For the most part, I think most of the team is in the office every day. Myself and the email person, uh, Joanne, who runs email and SMS is in. New Hampshire and I'm in Philadelphia. So I go in maybe like once a week or once every other week. So I'm in a hybrid kind of space. Yeah, for the most part, they're in office. Okay. Yeah. Retention ideas, like uh, ways that you can keep clients. You have ideas of your own or like, yeah, I'm curious to know, is there a book to read? <laughs> yeah, I think there, there's a couple of books that I really love. Obviously, Tony Shea, Delivering Happiness, the... Robert Cialdini influence and even Dale Carnegie, like these are broader books about people when it comes to the power of moments is a great book about, you know, going above and beyond for customers by, by Matt and Chris Dixon, the effortless experience by Matt Dixon is a great book about just frictionless supports. There are a a couple of great books, but I think for me, a lot of it is, you know, we've always focused on retention as like, how do we, 
get customers to come back versus like, how can we give them a reason to never want to leave? And I think that's the one side of retention people don't focus on enough. I mean, think about retention marketing as a role. It's always been like, how do we win people back? Like, how do we get churn subscribers? How do we reactivate? But it's never been about this proactive, like, how do we keep people happy? And I think that's been broadly my role with CX versus customer service is like, how can we be proactive about it? So me leading on both CX and retention gives me this front seat on seeing customer behavior pretty early on. Like we... I'm going through every single of our few thousand NPS scores and I'm looking at all the customer data constantly and synthesizing it and trying to get it in a, in a cohesive way so I can share it with the team so we can work on retention before people leave. But then the, the other side is like retention is always focused on post we acquire the customer, not enough on you know pre-acquisition. Like who are the customers we should be targeting for? Uh, who should we be aiming um, to get? And that's something that that Co- it's been a blast to work with Cody, who's who, who's the CMO and leads growth, because he he views that as like we'd rather spend more money to get the correct the right customer. So instead of just going straight for a win for a purchase, we'd rather acquire people that go through our funnel for six or seven days. So I think it's you know the answer to your question: Where do I get retention ideas from from everyday life? Like I I look I think for myself like what are brands that I feel intense loyalty to, and they're a very very there's a very small handful of brands that I really love and it's about the way they make me feel. And some of them they'll mess with me once or twice and I'll never go back. And some of them I'll take the abuse four or five, six times. And then I start thinking again, like, what is it? Like, how am I not leaving? But yeah. All right. Well, when it comes to like a product like makeup, like, or I don't know, like I guess if you're saying you focus on, on the intake side, like setting expectations, right. Yeah. And then, and then smashing those expectations. 100%. I think, I think most brands try to exceed expectations, but never ever met them in the first place. Like they try to go above and beyond, but never actually, you know, they'll say it takes two days to deliver, but it actually takes five, right? So it's like setting those expectations from the front end. And I think with, with products like ours, a lot of it is just like this no makeup, makeup look and customers that aren't privy to this and have never used it. It's, it's so important. I mean, we have a massive amount of SKUs and it's important to set expectations, both both on the pre-purchase page as well as as post-purchase journey. And that's always something we think about as a marketing team. It's like, what information is important enough to be on the PDP where people should see it pre-purchase? What's important enough to go in the flow? What's important enough that it should be on the FAQ of the page? Like just thinking about where the correct place to put information is. But I think it's it's a moving target. And we're always kind of trying to learn from customer complaints and customer you know, right. compliments. Like, um, right. Yeah. All right, sentiments usually are just, there's a lot of quiet people out there yeah. who aren't telling you what you want to know. All right, how can brands weave all their marketing together? And the, the, the behind this, this question is I, I saw a great email from Olipop where they did this thing on uh, Twitter, I think. You know, it was like, drinking Olipop makes me feel like blank. And then they got all this content and they put it into an email. Yeah, was that your idea? Or like, you know, but in general, like, you're, you're, you're standing on the top of the company and just, yeah, how can you like blend, dif- you know, different channels together? Why I just described it. Yeah, I think it's it takes a few things. I think it's you know the biggest kind of screw up you see in a marketing team is ego. I think what you see with a lot of brands where they bring in this like CMO or VP of marketing that's done it a million times and has very strong opinions where everything should live, and there's a lot of like kind of back and forth, and what you end up with is twelve different campaigns that live in 12 different places and it costs 12 times the amount of money because you're producing something 12 times. What we started talking about 
at Olipop with you know David, who's our who's our co-founder, who was leading marketing at the time, said like, let's try to think about a broader story to tell, and then let's think how that lives in every different channel. So we'd have somebody that you know, at that at that time I was leading SMS and I was leading CX, and we had somebody else who was leading email and somebody else who was leading you know social, and we kind of brought all those people together, and everyone their their part of the job was like, this is the story we're trying to tell. How does that live in your channel? And I think thinking like that before the campaign actually was produced was what made these campaigns successful versus most brands end up producing this $50,000 video and then think like, how do we market it? How do we put it on different channels? And you're already lost. So I think that's the biggest learning that, and it took us time to get there. I think we've, we've spent a lot of money on campaigns that didn't live in a lot of different channels or like just ended up on a YouTube link and nobody saw it before we got there. But um, eventually we got to a point where we realized you need to think about this before you produce your deliverables and start thinking where should they live. But I think that's the, the most important thing. All right, it's uh, Memorial Day and it's time for, you know, your final thoughts, whatever like, you want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, any, anyone that has ever heard any of my podcasts or, or anything I write about, I'm, I'm obsessed with customer experience. I'm obsessed with the way customer experience and retention intertwine. I am much more active on Twitter than I am on LinkedIn. I'm at Eli Weiss with an extra S. So it's W-E-I-S-S-S. -S -S. And I just started a newsletter that I talk about CX weekly. And it's been like 3,000 words and a ton of fun to write and have a great sponsor. And it's been, I think I just released week number two. So I'm working on week number three and it's been a total blast so that's uh you can find that on my pin, pin tweet but yeah and i'll i'll back that up yeah dude i love it i mean yeah i've read thank both, you yeah both of us you know one and two so far and looking forward to three uh so definitely sign up for that and um yeah that's it wonderman's not available for e-commerce that's what i found out this week not yet um, no. but they are all over <laughs> shopify so so go after it anyway i'm gonna let you go but stick around for a second that's our show for today. Thanks to everyone who joined and listened and commented. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you to our sponsor as always, Ongage. Mm -hmm.